Hi, I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, here to let you know about a new and innovative theater major, the BA in Theater and Business Arts at the University of Providence. Get the education and experience you need as a theater artist and the business acumen to succeed in your career. Visit broadwaybullet.com and stay tuned to the end of the program for more info. Now, enjoy the show. Ooh, is that pod on? Welcome to Next Big Hits Broadway Bullet, Volume 12. I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, and we've got a jam-packed episode for you. We've got George Fishoff, the composer and writer of Savage Light, talking about his new musical, and you'll get to hear a couple songs from that show. We've also got Tony nominee Nancy Opal talking about her new play, My Dear, and her career. And we'll also hear a couple songs that she sang and some original cast albums. We've got the writers of The Evil Dead, the musical, here. We've got three of the actors from the dark drama The Given. And we've got Dan O'Brien, the playwright of Voyage of the Carcass. We just heard from Dan Fogler last week, but Dan O'Brien's going to talk about the writing of that show. So... Stay tuned and don't miss a thing. For all of you new listeners out there, I know we keep getting them a lot. I want to remind you that if you subscribe in iTunes and listen on your iTunes or iPods, you can get the enhanced version of this podcast, which has pictures to go along with each of the interviews and songs. And you can also easily skip back and forth between the tracks, making this kind of like an audio magazine. And iTunes is free to download, so don't be scared. You can find out more information about all the people and the shows that we talk about in this episode by going to broadwaybullet.com, and you can click on the Volume 12 show, and it takes you to our forum where you can discuss the show and meet some great people. We also got a lot of theater blogs being updated on the front page of Broadway Bullet, so it's a one-stop shop for that. And a special announcement, we're going to be doing four special virtual panels We've got a group of directors coming in, a group of PR people. We've got some nonprofit artistic directors, and we've got some up-and-coming working directors. Four panels. We're going to take your questions. We're going to have a forum topic for each of the panels where you can submit the questions you'd like to ask. And as we get our confirmed attendees, I'll be putting their bios in there if you want to ask a specifically directed question to one of them. So be sure and stop by and get your questions in. Our goal is to make this insightful not only for the theater professionals, but also provide some backstage illumination on a lot of those people who are behind the scenes for those theater fans. And every time we get a great new interview announced, we're going to be posting that in the forums where you can submit your questions. We're setting a time. I'm going to be interviewing Patrick Page, who will be playing the Grinch in the new musical of The Grinch Who Stole Christmas. And keep stopping by regularly, because last minute when I get the interviews announced, I'll be putting up a thread and you can submit your questions. A little later on in the program, we're going to tell you how you can win a $20 gift certificate to the Drama Bookshop by stumping the staff. But to keep you guessing for a little while, here is this week's winning trivia question. Ned123 asked, What icon of the New York skyline appeared in a reputedly drab musical about World War I pilots and their gal pal, and what was the name of the show? Are you stumped? This one actually indeed did stump the drama bookshop, but we've got the answer. Stay tuned, and you'll find out how you can win. So let's get moving and on with the show. We quite often see a spirit of entrepreneurialism and production with straight plays, but often, mainly perhaps due to the excessive costs of mounting musical theater, do we rarely see it with musical theater. But we have a great production opening at the Abingdon Theater. 
that is just that. The show is called Gogan Savage Light, and it's written by George Fishoff. And we have George here with us. How are you doing today? I'm very, very honored, Michael, to be here with you, and thank you for the graciousness of having me. All right. So I want to talk a lot about this aspect, the fact that you're putting the show on yourself. Well, the York Theater did uh, two staged readings of this show. I had sort of retired this show. I wrote it years ago, and I have other musicals uh, that I wrote the music to that I've been pushing. But my wife, my wonderful wife, Gladys, of 46 years, she said to me two years ago, you know, you should take that Gauguin musical out and take a look at it again. So I took it out and sent it around in the York Theater, to make a long story short, did two staged readings for me, and I saw potential in that, and I'm very grateful to the York for doing that. But I had a certain vision of the show, and the only way to ensure that vision, Michael, was if I did it myself. I'm not saying I'm the richest man in the world, but um, from my uh, wife's pension and my hit songs from the 60s, which some of your older listeners uh, may remember, the Spanking Our Gang hit that I co-wrote um, with Tony Powers. I wrote the music, Lazy Day, Just Right for Love and Away, and the Keith Body Temperature song, Hey 98.6. If you had told me 40 years ago when they were hits, they'd earned me even pennies 40 years later, I would have had you certified for the loony bin, Michael. But those songs still come in heavily. There was certain money set aside that uh, I could do whatever I want for my career. And I decided to take a flyer with Gauguin Savage Light and uh, do it in a small but very powerful way. And we did a four-week workshop, non-equity workshop, with wonderfully talented young people at Theater Row in April and May a few months ago. And did I know that the New York Times would come? Uh, Neil Genslinger, one of their toughest critics, would give it a mixed but extremely encouraging review with wonderful quotes that we would start selling out our last week there and that uh, our little homemade CD that cost me a big $331 to make with all the songs from the show, with the singers in the show and me at the piano, that one quarter of my audience uh, at Theater Row during those four weeks last spring Michael, um, 160 people out of the 650 people that saw it there uh, bought the CD at the theater. And it was truly amazing. And I said, you know, and I even made back some, it only cost me 28 to 30,000 to do it. And people say, no, it's supposed to cost two to 300,000 yeah, to do for I've had, that, I've had several and, people uh, on the show saying, you just can't mount well, we a did. workshop for under two or 300,000. We 000. did. And it cost 28 to 30,000. And that include paying my actors, ads in the New York Times, and my theater rental, and my liability insurance. And I actually made back a third of that. I made back about 9,000 between tickets, ticket sales and the sale of the CD, the original cast album. So uh, I said, hey, maybe we can take this further. And so I made a deal with the Abington Theater, the wonderful little Abington Dorothy Strelzen Theater, which is down at 312 West 36, where we're going to be from November 8th through December 31st. You know, I made a nice deal with them. And believe it or not, including New York Times ads, the entire eight-week cost, everything, is a total of $35,000. And we'll see what happens with this thing. I, I have a wonderful director, Michael Orman. Interesting story. He was our lighting designer at last spring workshop of Gauguin Savage Light and did such an extraordinary job with practically nothing that he came and he said, you know, I have some ideas to direct this and uh, I won't charge you much. But I said, 
go, you know. And he is enriching this show, Michael Orman's direction. We're right in the middle of rehearsals now. We open uh, a week from next Wednesday. And he is doing things with my dialogue. And see, most times I write just music. But this time I wrote the book, the music, and the lyrics because I had a certain vision of Gauguin, the great painter's life. Michael Orman is bringing out things. Uh, and yes, Virginia, you do see the argument that Gauguin had with his friend Van Gogh that caused Van Gogh to cut his own ear off. Yes, you don't see the cutting off of the ear, but this is the argument that led to that famous thing. We just want to inspire people. When I say Gauguin will inspire you to achieve your dreams, I've had young people come up to me after seeing Gauguin, Savage Light, Michael, and say, you know, I've got this inner talent for this or that. And seeing how Gauguin struggled and finally triumphed even after death with his talent, I'm going to give more to my talent, to my special, unique ability. And that's the purpose of this show, beyond catchy music an exciting, uh, tiny little production. The only scenic decor is 14 huge reproductions of Gauguin's greatest paintings. The main thing is people are inspired to follow their own dreams and develop their own unique special talent. That's the purpose of this thing. So we're very excited about coming back. Well, yeah, speaking of that, that's probably a good time to launch into letting people hear the title song from the show. Sung by Jeff Nardone. And interestingly for your listeners, Neil Genslinger, the critic of the Times who reviewed the show, changed his review of Jeff's voice from fine voice to great voice when they redid us on the listings eight days later in the Times. Fine voice to great voice after hearing this CD. What am I doing? Why am I doing this? Strong and bright, there is a savage light. Leading me, marking my way Through the dark of the blackest night To the blazing sun of a new day Far as the end of the journey lies Long though the struggle may be Wrong or right to follow the savage light, I must be free. The right to dare anything, the right of the artist to be free. Strong and bright, there is a savage light leading me. Marking my way Through the dark of the blackest night To the blazing sun of a new day Far as the end of the journey lies Long though the struggle may be Wrong or right to follow the savage line, I must be free. Far as the end of the journey lies, long though the struggle may be. Wrong or right to follow the savage
you're talking about the themes of this is, you know, getting your inner talent out. And I know you also wanted to talk about perseverance in, in the wake of theater, which I think also ties in to some of the themes within the show Gauguin's Savage Life, but into your own personal life. You've written some other shows, and uh, I was yes, wondering, for instance, uh, you said you had an interesting story about how long it took you to get Sayonara up into a theater. Sayonara is a musical, Michael, that I wrote with my collaborators in 1965. High uh, Gilbert, the late High Gilbert, the esteemed lyric writer, wrote the lyrics, and William Luce, whom your um, Broadway uh, uh, listeners may know, he wrote things like The Bell of Amherst for Julie Harris and Christopher Plummer's Barrymore. He wrote the book. And I'd like you to guess, Michael, how long it took me from the time we finished writing the show Sayonara and the time I got the first theater to put it up in a production. I want you to guess how long I struggled against negativism and turndowns. August 15 years. Well, you're, you're, you, you went way out there, but it's actually, <laughs> you, ha you have to add seven. 22 years. Oh, wow. It, it was written in 1965. The first theater did it in 1987. Paper Mill Playhouse had turned it down a year and a half before that. But I read that they were going to have uh, do a new musical. They usually do revivals of Manoval Mancha and South Pacific and Carousel. And they were looking for a new show. And I said to my uh, collaborator, Hi Gilbert, the late esteemed lyric writer, let's submit it to, to, to Paper Mill. He said, George, you've been working so hard to get this on, and I've been trying to, uh, I didn't want to depress you. I did submit it. He said to me to Paper Mill 18 months ago, they turned it down. And so I said, well... Let me. Who who turned it down? He said their their dramaturg, a guy named Jeff Solis. So I called Paper Mill Playhouse. I was all ready to say, Michael, now Jeff, I know you're looking for a new musical. I know you turned this down, but we've written new songs and new scenes, and we just get through it again. So I said, uh, Can I talk to your dramaturg, uh, Jeff Solis? He doesn't work here anymore. Do you have a new dramaturg? Yes, Marianne Stevens. So I spoke to Marianne. While we were speaking, she was leafing through something. She said, George, I see my predecessor turned your show down 18 months ago. I said, yes, but his name was Jeff and your name is Marianne. And she said, but I'm tougher on shows than him. And I said, Marianne, give me 45 minutes. Get a piano out there. Let my collaborator and I come out and do the score and tell the story for you. If you're not crying so hard at the end that you can't speak... I'll never bring it up again. So we went out there and we played the audition of Sayonara for Marianne Stevens. And I'll never forget it. Uh, I couldn't see her while I was playing. I was at the piano and back there. I turned around and it was like, he was crying. <laughs> said, I'll call you. Paper Mill Playhouse spent $1,600,000 to do the first big production of Sayonara, a show they had turned down 18 months before, and that had been fighting against rejection for 22 years. Since then, 12 of the biggest theaters in the country have done it. The New York Times reviewing it at Paper Mill devoted two paragraphs just to my music, and I've earned over $100,000 in regional theater royalties. If I had given up after 15 years, Michael, what would have happened to that show? Follow your dreams to the end. If George Fisher wants something, one of three things happens. I get it, I stop wanting it, or I die. And I want your listeners to be inspired to do that. You never know what door is going to lead 
to that special magic yes after all those no's. No yeah. is nothing more nor less than a way station on the way to yes. We're at the uh, Abingdon uh, Theater, the small space at 312 West 36th Street, November 8th through December 31st. Please call Smart Ticks or go on smartticks.com. That's S-M-A-R-T-T-I-X or call 212-868-4444 for all tickets for Gorgan Savage Light. And I assure you, it will leave you with a different feeling than most things that you will have seen recently and feeling of inspiration and that you can do it. You can fight for your dreams and somehow in the end succeed as long as you don't give up too soon and you believe enough in yourself and your dream and fight long enough and hard enough for it. We're going to close us off with one more song from Gauguin, Savage Light. You want to set this up? The song your listeners are about to hear is called Only Dreams. It's my favorite song in the show. It's the duet between Gauguin and his Tahitian lover, the teenage girl uh, Tehora. But I think it's a very special way of saying I love you. All right, well, thanks so much for stopping down. Thank you for this great opportunity, Michael. Share my life, share my love, maker of all things beautiful. Come to me, stay with me, maker of all things beautiful, maker of beautiful things. Lips as warm as the warmest summer night. Eyes that dance with the laughter of a lovely child at play Only dreams, they were only dreams Of a time, of a place far away Golden skin of a fragrant mystery Hair so soft, putting all the very finest silk to shame. Only dreams, they were only dreams. Nothing real, nothing more than a game. And now with you, so close to me. My world of dreams is the world I see. Take my love, take this heart I give to you. Fill my life with a thousand feelings wonderful and new. All the things that I longed and hungered for, that I want forevermore are here within my view and they were only dreams they were only dreams till now till this moment with you
take this heart I give to you. Fill my life with a thousand feelings wonderful and new. All the things that I longed and hungered for, that I want forevermore, are here within my view. A classic Sam Raimi horror film is coming to the New York stage in the form of, yep, a musical, Evil Dead the Musical, and we have two of the writers with Evil Dead here with us today. How are you doing? Good. Great. Want to take a second to introduce yourselves and what you do with the show? I'm George Reimblatt. I wrote the book and lyrics and some of the music. My name is Frank Sapola. I am the composer and music supervisor. Now, I understand, first off, that you're not from the United States. No, no, we're from uh, we're from Toronto, and uh, this whole show is from Canada. So we just we just came down here to take over your country. So, what prompted you to want to do a musical for Evil Dead? I don't know. I just I would, we just wanted to do a musical. It'd be fun and spray blood on people and kill people and. Seemed like the perfect fit. So what was the process like going about getting the rights to do the show? I imagine there were some hurdles. You know what? The Evil Dead, um, like the creators were really cool about it from day one. Like we had, we're just a bunch of nobodies in Canada and they let us do this um, out of sheer kindness. Sam Raimi was really in the middle of doing Spider-Man, making hundreds and hundreds of millions and he just let us do this because he, he seemed to dig what we were up to. So it's uh, it's pretty cool. Whatever. We had our lawyers involved a bit, but it was uh, it was easier than it should have been. Did you just give him a written proposal or did you actually write up a lot of the show and, and turn it into him? Oh, uh, well, what we did was we were real, real small when we started. We were in the back of a bar in Toronto. That was our original place and they just let us do it there for free. They said, do what you want, send us a tape and we'll see what's going on from there. So they just let us go real, real small, do it our own way, and then uh, from there we had to uh, pretty much get the approvals from there. So what was the process like getting it to New York? <laughs> wow. <laughs> it's, it's been a bit of a, a journey, really. We started doing this three and a half years ago. We wrote the show in my grandma's basement uh, since we were all just fresh out of college. It didn't have a lot of resources. And we were able to put two great runs uh, in the Transact Club, which is... Uh, just a small bar in Toronto, and we had two successful three-week runs. And then luckily we were able to, uh, we were, someone from the Just for Last Festival in Montreal saw our show, which then we were invited to go and perform there, which opened us up to the whole world of New York producers and clear channels of the world and that type of stuff. And next thing you know, uh, you know, after a few years of just making sure that legally everything was set with the rights holders and whatnot, and we're here. The show's in previews currently, right? Yes, yes just for a few more days, then we open. So how has the audience reaction been to the show so far? Uh, you know what? They're loving it. I haven't seen anyone uh, say anything bad about this. It's They come out, they're covered in blood, they're having a good time. People come over and over again. It's pretty It's pretty crazy. They really seem to dig this. Like, There's like two fans, right? There's the Evil Dead fans who this is their favorite movie ever and they'd kill us if we screwed this up for them. And they seem to be digging it. And 
There's also the real theater fans of New York, which there's a ton of them here. I'm sure that's who's listening to this show. And they seem to be really liking it, too, because it is a solid musical on its own, even if you don't know the movies, if you don't know Evil Dead. Even if you don't think you want to see, like, a horror comedy, you'll still you'll still like this. There's a lot of... It's, uh, it's pretty sound on its own. I noticed you've been building, actually, up quite a MySpace presence uh, with the show as well. Yeah, totally. We've... Uh... We've got about 30, almost 34,000 friends, which has only been in the last five or six weeks that we've had the MySpace page up. And we actually crashed our server at first because we were just getting so much bandwidth demand on our site that we weren't even expecting it. And so we had to take some evasive maneuvers, And but we're up and going, and it's been very, like, the web community has really embraced our show. But that's that's been from day one. Like, when we were real small in Toronto, our website was still pretty pretty huge, and that's where we got all our attention. We, when we had no money at first, we had, like, zero dollars to promote this thing, so we only had the internet. And in Toronto, people are lined up around the block just from hearing it on the internet. Are there any of the particular cast members you'd like to point out in the show? Well, the weird thing with our show, which is really cool, is from day one, we had this, our, the, the lead, the guy playing Ash... Uh, his name's Ryan Ward, and he was our he was our guy back when we were paying him nothing, working in the back of a bar, and he's still our lead right now. He's still awesome. They're really loving him here. He's the only guy we brought up from Canada for this, so he's doing really good. Does everybody else hate him then? <laughs> no, no, they, they love him. Like, um, I mean, the original cast that didn't get a... <laughs> no, they still, they still love him. It's... Uh, <laughs> He's he's awesome. Like, there's no question. He's he's the man. And the rest of our cast, the rest of the cast is really awesome too. Like, they're re- a real, real talented bunch, and they're pulling us off. They have voices like you wouldn't believe. Yeah, yeah, they're all really, really good. I'm pretty impressed with all of them. They're a lot. They're all pretty uh, experienced, talented people from down here. So it's pretty cool. And even just to further give Ryan Ward some props in the fact that he goes out every night and he puts the show on his shoulders. Uh, with everything from, like, he cuts off his own hand, he fights himself. There's a lot of him by himself, but as a character that everyone is rooting for, he's done a great job of translating the iconic nature of the Ash character from the movies onto the stage. Yeah. The, the weird thing is there's two shows in New York right now, which came from Toronto, and both came from bars in Toronto. Uh, Drowsy Chaperone, which opened about four or five blocks from where we opened in, like, just this little bar as well, and us. And both of us, from day one, have kept our stars, replaced everyone else, and kept the, the lead. So it's pretty cool that that's, like, the similarity. Oh, I didn't, realize that, the, I didn't realize that the man in the chair was actually original from... Yeah, yeah, Canada. he's the original. He's, he actually wrote the... I think he wrote the book. He definitely is a writer involved. He's who the show is, is based on. His, his character is actually what it's called. But it's, that's uh, similarity. Us Toronto people, we keep our, we keep our leads and bring, bring them down. So how much did the producers come in and want to, like, fine-tune the show? Did you have a lot of work to do between then and, and the show in terms of rewriting and polishing up? or Less than you'd think. Actually, I would say it's almost been the opposite. The producers have been really adamant about maintaining yeah. the campiness and the kitschiness that we had when it was not on a big budget and when it was in a small, intimate setting. So the challenge to them has been able to replicate that here on on a bigger scale. Yeah, we're not we're not trying to take this small thing and, and make it this huge, huge musical. Like we're trying to keep the fun, the craziness that we always had when people were in the bar like smashing their drinks. Like we wanted we want people to still be that crazy. And even when you come to our theater, you can drink in your seats. Like it's a real fun atmosphere. We play like hair metal music before you come in. Like 
it's more fun, it's more crazy than you expect in musical theater. And the producers have been cool about it. They haven't told us to to do anything really um, that would that would ruin what what we're gunning for. And we're our own worst critics. We've we've written three new songs and stuff like that. Like that's us. That's not them. Mm-hmm. And actually, yeah, we, we want to thank them too. Like they've given us the resources and the support that, you know, I'm sure that there's always a classic artist producer struggle that happens when any show is moved from a small scale to a bigger a bigger platform. But our team has been great from day one, and you know, we want to thank them too because without their support, our vision would not be here. And I understand you. You don't even have any recordings of the songs yet. For the show, I know people are clamoring for them. I hope when you do get a recording of the of the songs, you let us oh, put a couple on the show for our listeners. No to... problem. We've we've got such great songs as uh, "All the Men in My Life Keep Getting Killed by Kendarian Demons," "Look Who's Evil Now," and and all the other titles have swear words in them. So yeah, we're so we can. <laughs> Actually, this is the internet, so uh, yeah, whatever. <laughs> we'll leave. You've got a good title. You can. <laughs> yeah, we'll leave the surprises for when you come to the show. <laughs> Where can they catch the show? Where can they catch tickets? Well, tickets, you can always go to Telcharge. We're playing at the New World Stages, Stage 1, which is 340 West 50th Street, between 8th and 9th. People are nodding at me like I got that correct, which is uh, pretty amazing. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, come on down, check it out. And, um, yeah, sign up to our MySpace page. You can get discounts on tickets sometimes, and you definitely know what's going down. We have Bruce Campbell, who's the star of the Evil Dead movies, come down November 2nd. Like, MySpace was the first to know about that. They sold out the joint immediately. So, yeah, 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 we're, we got some really cool stuff stuff brewing so and feel free to check out the actual show website which is eviledeadthemusical.com but more importantly just come see the actual show um, <laughs> I'd rather you came to the theater than just spend your time surfing the internet the whole time alright well thanks for coming down I wish you all the best of luck as you speed the last few crazy days towards your opening hey thank you hey thanks a lot for having us Marty Cooper's been with The Colony in the heart of Broadway for over 25 years. And during his stint there, he's seen and met just about everybody. And he has a lot to say every week in a segment we call On the Positive Side. Hey, it's Marty Cooper on the positive side again. And uh, if you take a stage, preferably on Broadway, and you put up three gray walls, put in a turntable, take a batch of garbage and throw it on the turntable, get some lights and some smoke and about 40 people, you create a miracle called Les Mis. And what they do to these lights, turntable, batch of garbage, and 40 people in the course of three hours is a miracle. The present production, now back on Broadway, is no exception. The story is a religious parable, and its great messages come through loud and clear. I have one thing to say. I've been reading the chat rooms you know, on Broadway Box, on all that chat, talking Broadway, and people are saying, get rid of Daphne Rubin Vega. Her voice does crackle. She can't quite do the notes, but I don't think there is a greater presence on that stage. When she's singing, I dreamed a dream, it breaks your heart. She's a diminutive person, broken down person standing on that stage, and she makes you cry. There is no more, as someone said, Dolly Parton wigs. They've done away with that. It's her natural hair. In my opinion, and you can laugh, I think she's great. Well, I've spoken enough about Daphne. I find that most of the cast is stalwart, to say the least. Alex Gimignani, with his baby face, is a great Valjean. I was really surprised at the pipes he has. 
because no other show he's done to this date has given him this opportunity. I love the fellow playing Andros. I thought he was fantastic, Aaron Lazar. He has a voice, something close to Anthony Warlow, anybody who knows him. I mean, his highs are very similar. At times you think you're hearing Mr. Warlow if you close your eyes. Most of the other people in the cast are fine. Everyone is talking about Gary Beach's Tenardier. He is fantastic. Uh, he should be up for a Tony in my book. And his wife, Madame T, is played by Jenny Galloway, who's from England. She's done it before. In fact, if you listen to the 10th anniversary recording, she's the Madame T on that recording. And she is great. As I said, with the cast, I have absolutely no problem. It should be left exactly the way it is. One thing I must say, I've seen the show many times, as people who know me know, I was watching it last Tuesday, and I felt like I'm seeing something I've seen before, but it's not the same. And it isn't. Its score is differently orchestrated, with a much warmer sound, less rocky, guitars or snare drums. There are strings. You hear that warmth come. I was welling up most of the night, as I tend to do in a theater, as people who know me know also. It was a gorgeous production. And I really hope it's here for longer than six months. It's supposed to close in six months, and that's at least what they're saying. But uh, I hope it's here for a while, because it just feels good to have it back. Right now, I understand it's already a hard ticket. Last week, they did close to 100%. You make your way down. You will enjoy it, even if you've seen it many times. Uh, someone told me the other day that it's not the show that you love. It's the way it makes you feel. Well. When you eat a good steak, it's really not the steak that you love. It's the way it makes you feel when you eat it. Les Miserables is a good steak. Until next week, this is Marty Cooper. We'll see you on the positive side. On the positive side is brought to you by The Colony in Manhattan at 49th and Broadway or online at colonymusic.com. You can always say, I found it at The Colony. So Marty's excited about the Les Mis revival. How excited are you? Let us know in our poll on the Volume 12 Notes Forum at BroadwayBullet.com. And now I'm very excited to step into our next interview. Nancy Opel is a Broadway veteran who's starred and been featured in many, many shows off and on Broadway, including receiving a Tony nomination for her role in Town. She's starring in a great new adaptation of Medea, called Madea. <laughs> we'll explain that in a minute. And with us in the studio is Nancy Opal. How are you doing? I'm good. It's good to be here today. Now, I just found out that uh, you've seen me on the train. <laughs> I have. We used to ride the A train. We were on the Broadway Express. That's what I always call it when I was living up in Washington Heights. Used to see you fairly regularly on the train, coming from events, I suppose. Yes, and there's a lot of a lot of theater people up there in sure that are. neighborhood. Yeah, and I'm back down in this neck of the woods, down in the down in Times Square again. All right. Well, first off, let's start off by talking a little bit about your brand new show, Madea. Madea, <laughs> it's I, I don't know whether you can tell. It's a southern show written by the brilliant John Epperson, aka Lipsinka. He's from Mississippi and is incredibly fluent in the world of the South, the Southern world, the Southern. Uh, talk, and also of every single movie, book, television show that has a reference 
<laughs> to anything Southern. I think we've got it all jam-packed in there. He's sort of a, as well as being a writer, he's sort of a collagist as well. You know, he, he just, you know, picks out all kinds of references from from old books and, and movies and everything. People who uh, tended to watch the Million Dollar Movies <laughs> way back when, <laughs> when they still were playing, certainly get a big kick out of uh, a lot of his references. Aside from that, he has also been really very careful in terms of putting the show together. It's literally almost line for line the same structure as Euripides' original. And the fact that he's also made it funny is is kind of a is just kind of icing on the cake. Yes, I I, I noticed the structure wise how he took it and you know so many of the monologues and the way dressing the audience and even the three yep. ladies kind of serve the purpose of the chorus. The chorus, yeah, it's really fascinating, and that's part of what drew me to it. It wasn't just camp. It wasn't just about being campy. It was it was something a little more than that. And for me, a deeper sort of connection. You know, that you can. I'm actually trying to play <laughs> Medea within the structure of our our funny show. I mean, we do it all. I mean, you know, we don't we don't back away from anything. The play really gets done. I don't read reviews, but I think someone actually said that for the first time someone understood why she did what she did because of the circumstances and what drove her. So, I think that's a great thing too. Well, even the costuming, even though it's set in with the beauty queen aspect of Medea, <laughs> yeah. your costume is also very uh, Grecian. <laughs> yeah, well, I think that, that what they wanted, it, they wanted it to look sort of vaguely sort of like a Greek column, you know, and sort of also a little bit slightly 80s, a little slightly Joan Collins, <laughs> and also kind of like she'd just sort of gotten up from her from her chaise in a peignoir, you know, and it's had walked out to to greet her friends who were coming to see how she is. So it's funny to do two roles like that, yeah, too. Yeah, I was going to say, you're going to chew up yeah, the stage. Because I'm, the... Literally, I'm literally running off stage and changing into the, the other role, my sort of alter ego, the maid, which, of course, is the nurse in the original, uh, Lily V, who's sort of in the old house dress and everything. So I go from sort of the Joan Collins-esque sort of look down to the, the, the Agnes Moorhead look in <laughs> Hush, Hush, Sweet Charlotte. We do it really quickly. It's kind of interesting how fast. It doesn't even feel that fast to me anymore because now I'm used to it. But people watching the play go, whoa, there she is again, you know. So it's a fun transformation. And you get to say fun lines like, uh, Euripides, you pay for these. Yes, I do. Okay, now, all right. Now, that's a silly one. But, uh, yeah, I've got, a, I've got a lot of great stuff. And not just funny stuff. I mean, that's the, that's the great part of it. It's, it's really uh, very rewarding for me as an actress. There's a lot to sort of spew out on the stage during the play. So I feel like I really get to take that emotional journey as well as try to make people laugh, which is fantastic, which is what drew me to it. That's the reason I wanted to do it. You were in the workshop, too, this morning. I was in the workshop in the spring. I was originally introduced to the, to the play itself uh, mid-December last year. We did a reading of it. They decided at the Abingdon that they would like to do a workshop, and then the workshop happened mm, April, April, May this year. Um, and then they said that they would like to do a fuller production of it. So here we are. That actually ties into a question one of our listeners wrote in was uh, Nochaka wanted to ask you if you enjoy doing readings of new musicals. Well, I guess we can scope it into new plays as well. Right. And what gets you to say, yes, I'd like to do that to a work and developmental oh, process? That's a very good question. I'll tell you, uh, it's one of the greatest things in the world to be sort of in a circuit where people ask you to look at new stuff. 
it is truly the most exciting thing. I remember when I got the script and the score of Urinetown, I sat down with it, was just blown away by how fantastic it was. Greg Codis and Mark Holman just wrote this amazing show. Not everything is amazing that, that I get. <laughs> Not everything is, is terrible either. Uh, you know, there, there are lots of things that, are, that have tons of potential, some realized later on and, and some not. I would guess the thing that draws me is, do I feel like I have something to give to the show and the part? If it speaks to me immediately, usually I'll continue. You know, I like to try to take a look at something before I say yes. But if there's something about the role or the show that either I find funny or touching or just plain well-crafted, I, I, I will usually sign on for it. So maybe we can take a quick break. We can play your uh, song from your Tony-nominated role from Fantastic. You're in Town, Privilege to Pee. Thanks. Bobby! Bobby, reason with the woman. I'm a little short this morning. He's my pa, Miss Pennywise. Can he come in for free just this once? Get your head out of the clouds, Bobby Strong. No one gets in for free. Every morning you all come here, and every morning some of you got reasons why you ain't gonna pay. And I'm here to tell you, you is gonna pay. In the name of God, Penny, what difference could it make? What difference? Times are harder, cash is tight, you've got the right, I've heard it all before. Just this once is once too much, cause once they've once, don't want to once, once more. I run the only toilet in this part of town, you see. So if you gotta go, you got to go through me. It's a privilege to be. Water's worth its weight in gold these days. No more bathrooms like in olden days. You come here and pay a fee for the privilege to pee. Twenty years we've had the drought and our reservoirs have all dried up. I take my baths now in a coffee cup. I boil what's left of it for tea and it's a privilege to pee. Oh, 
but Miss Pennywise. That's enough, Bobby. And I think I'll charge you twice. No need to jeopardize your position. Or better yet, have you arrested? I'm through with all this, you see. Since you prefer the law gets tested. Scraping cash three and times a you're day. you're in town, you'll see. Crazy with a nightshirt half the time. to fight with me. It's no way to live, I tell you. No way to live. I haven't actually seen any of Lip Sync's stuff. Yeah. And there were several points in the show where I was like, what is everybody laughing at? Right. Is there also some inside jokes going on with people who are fans of his? Or uh, you know what? I don't know about that. Like I said before, there is so much material that has been lifted from old movies and books. And if you are from that part of the world. All of those references are real. The Hazelhurst tornado. There's all kinds of stuff that if you grew up in that region, you would totally get. And honestly, I had to be enlightened in many cases. <laughs> go, okay. I, 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 this is a couple times. The crowd is just laughing Yeah, and you insanely. go, I'm, and I'm okay. Like... No, I don't get it. I know. I know. <laughs> there are certain things that I didn't get when I first read it. And I don't think there's a single thing. Practically, there's not a single word except for the stuff that is basically from the original text that there isn't some sort of cross-reference in terms of, of either his own personal life growing up like Whitfield really is the state mental institution. <laughs> and we talk a lot about sanatorium, sanitarium, sanatorium. That is also from something called Straight Jacket, I believe is a movie uh, with what's-her-face, Joan Crawford. They literally, in the movie, they talk about a sanatorium, sanitarium, sanatorium. Everybody's calling it a different thing, which he always thought was funny, so he put it in the play. So there's tons of references. Like I said, he's kind of a collagist. He takes all kinds of stuff from everywhere. There's stuff from Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte. I, I can't even I can't even explain how many movies. There's stuff from uh, To Kill a Mockingbird, Valley of the Dolls. I mean, you know, just it, it runs the gamut. Beverly Hillbillies. And several people, not just you, but there's a few other actors get to play dual roles in the show as well. Yes, there's a few of us, as and, a matter of fact. And you're explaining that some people were a little confused and thought some of the actors left and didn't take a bow. Oh, there's a, there's a bunch of people. I, you know, like I said, I play two parts and two other characters play two parts. Jeff Malloy and Kevin Townley play my sons, but they also play two of the sort of town ladies who sort of serve as the chorus. There's something about putting on a wig that turns a young man into a middle-aged woman. I don't quite know what it is if they don't have enough makeup on. See, they have to go very light on their makeup because they play the boys, too. So you put these wigs on them, and it's really bizarre when they put on their little middle-aged lady outfits they sort of look like middle-aged ladies, and it sure fools some people who don't closely read the program <laughs> because they go, wait a minute, how many people are in this show? Because we all sort of change into these other people. I finish up the show as my dia, and Lily V was my last uh, exit as the maid was probably two, three scenes before the end of the show. And people wonder what happened to her. But we can't both appear at the same time. So it's, everybody pretty much figured it out by the end, I think. you know. But there are people who have walked out of the show, and not stupid people, who've walked out saying, hey, why didn't everybody 
show up at the curtain call. I don't know how last minute this was, but I understand there's a pretty last minute cast change from Brian Batt to Maxwell Caulfield. I think it's about as last minute as you can get. Max was offered the role on Friday before we started on (laughs) Tuesday. That's about as fast as it can get because Brian was going to be with us up until the very last minute. He had a conflict in terms of jobs, and then he also herniated a disc in his back, and he was literally lying on his back in agony and not really able to participate. So we were very lucky, you know, that uh, Maxwell read the play and was really interested. I mean, it was just whirlwind in terms of finding him. We're going to play one more song from a show you've been in, uh, Triumph of Love. Oh, yeah. From 1998. Yeah, and this one is probably with Roger Bart, my darling Roger Bart. We do a really adorable uh, little uh, duet together. This one is called Mr. Right. We meet at this estate, and uh, we realize we're both attracted to each other, so that's, that's what this is. Give me a man who can rise to the moment at hand I mean my kind of man Just need to look in his eyes And you know where he'll stand No sweet forevers, no ties Nothing promised or planned No, 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 no gold band just want a guy who supplies what these moments demand. Mr. Right, Mr. Right, I can't believe that I finally found you. Handsome brute, that's delight. I cannot resist you at my Mr. Right. of carnal pleasure call me skilled beyond all measure like the Casanova of their dreams very temple virtuoso not the move I'd make is so-so just what you are seeking so it seems future plans lined up? No. (laughs) (laughs) So somebody call, right? Yeah, somebody call. Yeah, I'm actually really highly available (laughs) after Thanksgiving. (laughs) Now, you know, this might be an interesting thing because you've done so many, you know, you've 
you're, you were just recently Yenta. In- yeah, I did. T- yeah, I did t- um, two years, almost two years, you know, in Fiddler, a role and a show I never thought I would do. But I had a great time. You know, and as many credits as you have, you just tell me that you're you don't have anything on the horizon. No, I really don't. Almost always, you know, something comes along. You know, it's it's both the blessing and the curse of show business is to sort of realize you're stepping into the abyss, you know, after your show closes. But uh, well, the question I might ask there is, how actively do you have to hunt? In, at this mm. point, you've you've been received drama desk nominations. Yeah, Lucille Lortel. Yeah, it? yeah, that was for that was for a David Ives show. You know, I've done a lot of David Ives plays. You know, something I don't think anybody these days, especially if you're doing you know mostly theater, I don't think you ever can drop the hunt. I think it's always about trying to find the next project. I mean, I do get called about a lot of things, but you know, on the other hand, I'm out pounding the pavement like a lot of people. Uh, I don't think that ever ends. It's it's always about proving yourself the next time, and we were lucky with this with this show because you it's always a roll of the dice to see if you'll get attention. You know if there will be notice paid to whatever play you're doing if you're doing it off Broadway or off off Broadway or wherever. So you're hoping that the gamble of working in a very small place will be outweighed by the attention that you get, and it was in this mm-hmm. case. It's it's been terrific. That um, that we've been noticed, uh, and that we've gotten good notices, um, but you never know about that. Sometimes you say, "Oh, you know, it was the part of a lifetime, and you know, nobody saw it." <laughs> but I'm hoping, that, you know, that uh, before uh, Thanksgiving, everybody runs down to to, to see it because um, I think they'll be happy if they did. It's, it's it's a great show. You are much younger looking in person than any of the roles I've seen you in so <laughs> That's far. That's because I am. <laughs> I'm only 29 years old, and I have been for a very long time. <laughs> um, I appreciate that. Well, you know, that's the funny thing about about show business. You know, lots of times I'll get calls for things, you know, and they'll go, oh, well, they want to see her for such and such. I go, that woman's supposed to be 60, <laughs> you know, or whatever, because – if someone hasn't really seen you walking around, you know, in your street clothes or whatever for a while, they sort of get the idea that you're Penelope Pennywise in a tracksuit or something. You know, they go, it's just like some other, they have some other vision of what you really look like. I walk around Times Square walking my dogs, and even people who know me don't recognize me sometimes, you know. Who is that girl, that, that youngster over there walking her dogs? <laughs> um, but, you know, you put on a wig and a crazy costume, and... And you transform. No, Chaka also had another question for you, um, saying that years ago that he saw you in a totally delightful musical about an actor who doesn't like musicals waking up to find out he's in a musical, Joe. Yep, that was Joe. He had a dream cast. Was it Brian Darcy James, Mark Kudish, Sut- yeah. David Garrison, Sutton Foster? Yep, Emily Skinner, right? Yeah, and he was wondering whatever happened to that show. It was written by uh, Dan Lipton and David Rossmer. They did a great job on this show, and they, you know, it. Since that time, we worked on it. Gosh, I don't even know what year it was, but it was over at Manhattan Theater Club. We did a we did a reading of it. I think since that time, they've done productions. I don't think there's ever been one here in town. It was a great little show, and that person must have been. <laughs> Up at Manhattan Theater Club in a reading watching it because uh, that's where we did it. All right. So there's still a little bit of time left to catch Madea. 
Oh, when yeah. Is it, when is it running through? We're running through uh, the 26th of November. Oh, you extended. Yes, we did. Well, that's great. Baby, we extended the first We extend the first day we were, we were on, you know, with, with reviews that we got. I don't read them. Ta-ta. But uh, I hear they were good. So, yeah, we, we extended last week. Where can people go to get tickets? We are at the Abingdon Theater, which is the what's actually the, the June Havoc Theater, 312 West 36th Street. And I believe you can call Smart Ticks as well. The Abingdon Theater has a website that you can check out pictures and some quotes, nice quotes. And uh, we'd love to have everybody show up before Thanksgiving. All right. Well, we thank you so much for stopping down and speaking with our listeners. It's my pleasure. We wish you the best of luck with the rest of the run. Hey, I, I live uh, right down the street. I'll come by anytime. Yes. <laughs> Pop in. (laughs) Thanks. Okay. Hi, I'm Nancy Holson. And I'm Jay Falzone. And And we we created Bush Wars. Wars. Check out our interview and hear a song from the show next Thursday right here on Broadway Bullet. And meanwhile, if you are not a fan of Bush. Uh, The president, that is. Then come on down and see Bush Wars at the Actors Playhouse in Greenwich Village. And you can check us out online at bushwars.com. Well, back to that stumper of a trivia question. Ned123 asked, what icon of the New York skyline appeared in a reputedly drab musical about World War I pilots and their gal pal, and what was the name of the show? Well, Max and Alan took a stab, and they said, well, as best as we can figure out, the musical was Rosalie by, among others, Gershwin and Romberg. As for the icon of the skyline, I'm going to guess the Statue of Liberty. Come on, guesses are allowed. (laughs) This was a tough one. Well, it was a tough one, and the guess wasn't right. But Ned123 got on and answered. She's on a roll. This is twice in a row for Ned123 winning. She says, The actress was Faye Ray, an icon of the New York skyline, and the show was Nikki, based on a short story by John Monk Saunders called Nikki and Her Warbirds, which was turned into a film called Last Flight. And I heard it was drab from my grandmother, who actually saw it, but I don't know if you'll count that as a source. It was a real show, though, and she lists the Internet Broadway database entry on the website on Volume 11 if you want to check it out. So if you'd like to enter our Stump the Staff contest, just head to broadwaybullet.com, and there's a link that'll take you to a specific forum post where you can post your questions. The first 10 entered each week are eligible and get rolled in for next week for the Drama Bookshop to answer, and then we announce the winner here. You don't have to be from New York to enter because the Drama Bookshop does ship internationally. And anytime you're looking for a good theater resource on books, be sure to check out the Drama Bookshop because these guys clearly know their stuff. You should see the hard questions that they did answer under Volume 11. Find them in New York on 40th Street between 7th and 8th Avenues or online at dramabookshop.com. We're moving on and back into the interviews. A dark drama is brightening the stage of the relatively new Dante Studios, located at 257 West 29th Street in the heart of Chelsea. And here are three of the actors from the show to discuss the interesting concept. My name is Laura Heisler. I play Kathea. My name is Jason C. Brown, and I play Swane and the yoga instructor. I'm Anthony DeSando. I play Leon. All right, well, first off, uh, what's the given about? It centers around a young woman named Kathea, who I play, who is a stripper. And the sort of makeshift family that she's built around her, consisting largely of these two gentlemen who who play her best friends. They're both gay men. Uh, She's known them both for a very long time. Jason's character character has has, uh, AIDS and has been recently kicked out by his boyfriend of many years and is 
homeless and broke now. And uh, Anthony plays a very uh, responsible nurse. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> Leon, who's a he's a crazy drug addict and uh, also a gay man, and who is a bug chaser, which is somebody who's actually trying to get AIDS. Uh, in his case, it's because he thinks that he will win the heart of this man that he loves who has AIDS. If he gets infected, he will, th- this man will be comfortable to take him in. And, and, and it's also about wanting to belong to a, a community and wanting to be a part of something. I mean, the phenomenon, to whatever extent it is, of bug chasing. And then there's also these other characters that are all sort of marginalized and poor and throwing their hearts in the wrong direction and then the play you know deals with all of these people and the family and the very fractured dysfunctional family that they are and in the midst of this Kathea the stripper who I play uh, falls in love with a married man that she meets at the club and there's sort of disastrous consequences now who is the playwright for the show a woman named Francine Volpe she had another show of hers at Studio Dante called Late Fragment which was which dealt with 9-11 Mm-hmm. She's also the literary director of uh, Studio Dante as well. I guess really briefly, this might be a good time. Uh, what is the brief history of Studio Dante? Well, Studio Dante was founded by Michael Imperioli and his wife, Victoria, I believe about two years ago. Two, maybe three, two, three years two ago. Two to three They've years ago. They've had a ago. couple seasons now. Mm-hmm. They basically brought a building with a storefront and completely transformed and renovated the storefront into this beautiful jewel of a theater. Um, It's very small, very intimate. It's about 65 seats. Very small playing space, but they just recently, with this show, expanded the stage area. And so it's a little bit larger, so this is the first show that they have with a larger, renovated stage. And their mission statement, I think, is to to develop new plays and new playwrights and to give a voice for particularly sort of urban, dark subject matter. I guess speaking on that, you know, it, it seems to me like back in the 90s, it's, it almost seemed like every other play on, you know, Broadway or off-Broadway was dealing with AIDS and HIV, and then there didn't seem to be a whole lot for a while, and I'm kind of curious from the three of your perspectives what you feel that uh, the playwright is bringing new to the table in the subject matter for, you know, the 2000s. Well, I think that with the arrival of all these new HIV drugs and that people are living much longer and it doesn't seem like it's as much of as, as an epidemic when it, as when it first arrived. That, um, at least in this country. Yeah, at least in this country, that uh, in America, that you know, social consciousness has kind of drifted away from it and attention is not being paid to it. And now infection rates are actually spiking right now and it's becoming more of an epidemic again, but the same attention is not being paid to it. So I think plays with this subject matter and Francine discussing it at about that time when it happened in the in the early 90, early to mid-90s that, you know, it's extremely relevant right now. And it winds up affect, without giving too much away, the disease winds up affecting certainly not just the homosexual characters in the play, but a wide spectrum of people who wind up getting involved in this sort of crazy... Melange. Melange. Yeah, melange. <laughs> and I think also she's looking at something that I don't know anybody's talked about in a play I'm aware of, which is, again, the phenomenon of uh, bug chasing. And this is a real thing. There is actually a documentary called The Gift, uh, which deals with the subject matter. And it also touches upon how people are not necessarily dying of AIDS, but from the drugs that are keeping them alive while they have that. The concept of bug chasing was really explained uh, in the film by a character who was doing it, a young man, who said he'd been worrying so much for 25 years, 20 years, that he would get HIV, that the, the constant worrying was suffocating him, and if he could just get it, 
he'd be able to breathe again. It's like being chased by a boogeyman and just crouching over, letting them get you instead of keep running, mm-hmm. in a way. And I guess because there is the idea that you can live with with HIV now, with with the advent of drugs, like uh, Jason was saying, there is a kind of irresponsibility maybe in certain circles about behavior then that comes from that and, and sort of a, a lack of understanding about what it is still to live with it, mm-hmm. to just live with a disease for the rest of your life. I guess with this kind of a dark subject matter, this may be odd for me to say, but as actors, you guys having fun with this? Do you guys have some nice juicy parts? To we do. <laughs> we all, that's what's wonderful about what Francine has written is if there's six characters in the play, every single character has a fantastically juicy part that is humorous and that is devastating their own story and that gives everybody a chance, I think, to really play and have a really, really, really rich experience in the story. I think every night all of us are always talking after the show or during it, during other scenes, about what our new favorite lines are yeah. and how you know those new lines start popping out. Francine is, has some rich jewels, gems of lines. Yeah. My, uh, fa- my favorite part about the show that I, I'm enjoying the most is uh, for the first time I get to wear black velvet pants and <laughs> black leather chaps. <laughs> and uh, I don't know if I'll ever get that chance again, so he, I'm really enjoying he it. He plays well. a very flamboyant character. Yeah, I'm sure he'll be taking those with him. After the show, Sharon Angela actually the velvet ones maybe, <laughs> right. but not, not the chaps. I'm not going to. Oh, those. you have to. Sharon Angela, uh, an actress in the show, plays a stripper who is a real sort of tough broad and has been doing it forever and has an alcohol problem. And she has some of the best lines in the play. Definitely, yeah. it's a real, it's a very moving part, but it's also just a hysterically funny part in the way Sharon does it. There's a lot of just wonderful monologues that have Francine's gift for gab. Mm-hmm. And Francine, I think something that's really special about her writing is that she really finds a unique voice for each character in the play. I think sometimes certain playwrights, they have one voice, and all the characters seem to sort of be speaking from that voice. You know, And, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think some great plays are written like that. But something that's really neat about this play is every character, and these are very different people from different ethnicities and backgrounds and, and, and histories, really sound authentically like who they are and, and uniquely like who they are. And she finds the humor... Uh, that's very character-driven and not sort of playwright-driven. Right. It's just, it it's really comes out of the character. I believe. Volpe Volpe Volpe. Right. Yeah, she's, she's just very, very contemporary and very colloquial. And Sounds like real people. Sounds mm-hmm. like real New Yorkers. Uh, the audiences have been extremely receptive yeah. and, um, you know, always stay, they kind of have the, the outer vestibule is kind of like a salon where the bar is and um, audience members are always staying after to talk to us and tell us how you know, affecting that the work was and how much that they enjoyed it and how mm-hmm. I, I have many friends who have seen it and have called me up days after to say that they're just still thinking about it and, you know, want to call me up and just talk about, you know, the subject matter and the characters and how it affected them. So It seems to be something where people are laughing for most of the way and then at a certain point they stop laughing <laughs> and they're very, very disturbed. There's some real disturbing stuff, especially mm-hmm. as it keeps going. But it does seem like it really affects people either way. However it affects people, that's what you want. It makes them think. Mm-hmm. gets under their skin. Well, how long do they have to catch the show, and where can they get tickets? Uh, you can get tickets through SmartTicks, smartticks.com, or by calling that number, or you can go to the box office. And uh, we run for two more weeks. We run through uh, Saturday, November 11th, and we have performances Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday evenings at 8 p.m. Uh, there are no matinees. Because it is a small theater, I think the theater encourages people to get tickets ahead of time just to ensure that they will get tickets because we are selling well and, and, and have a good advance sale. Um, but it's a really special play, and it's an incredible group of actors, so people should see it. Well, I thank you guys for coming down to talk about the show. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you. Remember, if you're looking for more information on the shows we're talking about in this episode, you can go to broadwaybullet.com, click on the Volume 12 
link and it'll take you to our forum pages where we've got all sorts of links. And especially when they're being sold by smart ticks, we do have a direct link to their page so you don't have to search on their website. Last week, we had Dan Fogler on talking about his career and his performance in Voyage of the Carcass. And we've got here with us this week, the writer of Voyage of the Carcass, Dan O'Brien. How you doing? Good. How you doing? Ah, keep him busy. Good. <laughs> now, a little bit of what I said with Dan Fogler was a bit intentional. I, I mm -hmm. called the play a Beckett play within a Pinter play about mm -hmm. writing a Beckett play. So I'm kind of curious on your thoughts writing it, what you were thinking going into those types of scenes. Well, it, it started as a, um, I guess, something of a Beckett play. I mean, we were more interested. It started as a group-generated play, me and uh, myself and two other actors, one of whom had, had trained at several different training programs for mimes and clowns. And the three of us really wanted to do a physical theater piece, comedy, dark comedy, about, in some way, about polar exploration. That was the idea. And because I was writing it or sort of in charge of guiding the writing, I was probably responsible for the Beckett-like elements of the play, just because when I was younger, I was such a huge fan of, you know, Waiting for Godot was probably the, the first play I read at, you know, 12, 13. No idea what it meant, <laughs> but it blew my mind. So the clown piece became probably a bit more Beckett-like. And there's a joke about that in the play, sort of a self-referential, ironic joke about that. But we really just wanted to start with a, a much crazier, physicalized, clown-ish world. And so we wrote that one-act play together, which is just the North Pole scenes, basically, in the play. And then I went away uh, in the next few months after that and wrote what came around it, all the sort of, for lack of a better word, what we call the real-life scenes or the verite scenes. And with that, I just the instinct really was just to write something that was polar opposite, if you'll pardon the pun, a complete different style from the, the sort of clown world, this clown world. So it ended up being something that I think could seem uh, on a good day like Pinter or something, you know, in that it's, there's a lot of subtext and there's a lot of talk in the play, but there's, it's really hopefully working subtextually. And so a lot of the meaning and the meaningful moments come during pauses in between the lines. And, and the actors are doing a great job with that. And I think that's why the actors have been committed to this project for two years, among other reasons. One reason is, is because they get the chance to do so much, to do a lot of different things, you know, to, to play not only one but two, maybe three characters that are all sort of alter egos of the same character in two vastly different styles. I think it's a real challenge and, and, and workout. And they all really wanted to do it. Yeah, I think it's important to maybe, maybe mention that, I don't know, three people is enough to say ensemble, but it really is, uh, you know, Dan Fogler may be the lead per se, but everybody's got tons to do. It's pretty equally balanced, all that yeah. given. Yeah, it really is. I mean, he's, yeah, Dan's character, especially in the polar scenes, is such a childlike monster that he, he does a lot of the, the talking and everything. So, you know, in some ways he is the lead. But the, it's really a three-character play. I mean, it's really an ensemble play. And one thing that you mentioned before you started interviewing was your attempt at blending the fantasy even into the reality portion of the... Yeah, that was the idea, that if we're going to start off with these two different styles, these two different worlds, these two different stories to some degree, part of the, the, the fun of the play, I hope, is that we see that these are not two different stories. They're essentially the same story. So these two worlds mesh together, and it only made sense then for me that the styles start to sort of mesh together so that the real-life scenes become progressively more absurd and theatrical in a certain way as, as the play goes on, which is sort of making a comment on naturalism. 
naturalism too, which is the idea that naturalism on stage is just as unnatural or just as engineered as something much more stylized. And then the polar scenes, which are highly stylized, hopefully by the end have a real kind of realistic or meaningful resonance with the with what the story's about, which I guess is sort of trying to make the point that those very stylized theatrical scenes are, are no less real, no less important than the other scenes. So there's a kind of, there's an attempt at, at meshing the two worlds into one by the end. Now, and I understand, too, that you're discussing putting the monologue that Dan did on this program up on YouTube. That's, there <laughs> has been some discussion, and I, I don't know if it's going to happen. I would love, love to see it. He does such a great job with it, and I think... You know, I have mixed feelings about the monologue is, is sort of a list of, well, he's, he said it on your podcast, so I can say it, okay. sort of fuck this, fuck that, you know, all these different things the characters fed up with in the theater. And I think it's, he does a great job with it. I, I think it's important, though, at the same time that people understand it in the context of the play where it's this character who's really just the, the, the play for this character, sort of his attempt to deal with his self-destruction or to, that, you know, he really... Um, falls apart and that and that with with bitterness and that speech is really the uh, the climax of that and so you know I wouldn't want to just become out of context that this is the play make, saying some objective thing about the theater it's really more important to me that, that the character feels that and what he how he changes in the course of that monologue even by the very end he's saying fuck me you know above everything he must mm-hmm. all go ahead and fuck me so hard you know so he's really aware on some level that, that it's his problem you know he sort of has to figure out a way to not view things in such a negative way now one thing that i also noticed about the show watching it is at times it really became this kind of was that scripted or was that improv? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and and maybe you can enlighten me as to yeah. as to was most that scripted or or was there indeed a lot of improv happening as well? Well, there's probably more improv than you'd usually see in, in an off Broadway play. At the same time, there's a lot of you know business in the play that that was written to seem as improvised as possible, as spontaneous as possible. So it's a mixture of both, I think. You know, there there definitely and and a lot of the spontaneity that's in the script has come from other productions where I've just stolen things that actors have <laughs> tried out in rehearsal or, or, or you know, um, a tiny little thing that always gets a laugh is when Dan ca- Dan's character, Dan Fogler's character, says, he, he says persnaps several times in the play when people ask him, what, do you think I'm being pretentious? And he goes, persnaps. And that was just the actor in the first production. It was first produced uh, when I was in grad school at Brown uh, at Perishable Theater and a great bare bones production and the actor did that so there's tons of things like that Dan Fogler's uh, what's amazing about him he is a performer he keeps everything so so spontaneous and so alive and so dangerous you know so he's he's definitely brought a, a lot of that to his characterization which I think is great because I think the play's got to feel kind of kind of dangerous and and weird and we shouldn't quite know <laughs> What's happening all the time? I, you know, I love that. I think some people might not, but I think I think it gives it a real youthful vitality. So he does. He 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 improvises a fair amount. And we we there are places in the script where it's it's sort of an invitation to improvise. Like in the script, there's you know at the end of the play when Bane is trying to find ways to kill himself and he's going through the bag, this enormous bag of supplies and. In the script, it basically says whatever he pulls out, he can do whatever he wants with it. And every night he just pulls out different things. And, and that's sort of the most extreme example of improv in the script. So, yeah, it's a little bit of both. Well, if people are listening to the show quickly, they still have a couple days left to catch mm-hmm. Voyage of the Carcass. It plays through November 5th at the Soho Playhouse? Soho Playhouse, yeah. All right. And we're going to bring you back in a couple of weeks Great. to talk to you a little bit more about playwriting because... 
So, a little more about our brand new theater and business arts major. I know what most theater programs are like, and I've talked to thousands of artists. All of this told me that a new style of theater major was needed. Theater majors can get a pretty good arts education just about anywhere, but most programs do very little to prepare actors, directors, playwrights, technicians, producers, etc., to manage their careers. When you go into the arts, you are your own business, and you need to manage that to strategically plan for your career to grow. If you've listened to many of these interviews, you know you need to be self-starters to create your own opportunities. I'm going to make sure you are ready for that world. You'll get a ton of opportunities as an undergraduate. Actors will act, even as freshmen. Designers will design shows right away. Playwrights will see their shows mounted. Directors will direct. Producers will handle shows from inception to execution. Outstanding guest artists will conduct workshops, and outstanding students will even work on this podcast and travel to New York with me for interview weeks. And if that isn't enough, we've got an amazing program that will pay all or part of your student loan payments, even private loans, if you are earning less than $40,000 six months after graduation. That is an invaluable option that lets you pursue your passion in theater with less financial pressure. If interested, and I hope you are, Go to broadwaybullet.com. I'd love to help you launch your career.